So I want to go back to the framework of the Buddha's teaching a little bit, which is where I learned these methods and this style of meditation practice. I think really honestly that these things are universal truths and they don't need to be said in this way, in this context, but it's certainly how I learned it myself and so it's the easiest way for me. Uh, to try to describe, I think, an understanding of our sense of human nature and human capacity for love and connection and awareness and so on. So I, I come back to sometimes what I call three visionary statements of the Buddha. The first is, the mind is naturally radiant and pure. The mind is shining. That's your mind and my mind. The mind is naturally radiant and pure. The mind is shining. It's because of visiting forces that we suffer. Forces like greed, jealousy, hatred, fear. The mind is naturally radiant and pure. The mind is shining. It's because of visiting forces that we suffer. So there are a couple of things about that statement that I think are very important. One is these forces are just visiting. Right? They're impermanent. They're not inherent to our being. They're adventitious. They're born out of conditions coming together in a certain way. They may visit a lot. <laughs> they may visit nearly incessantly, but they're still just visiting. So in other words, they're not who we really are. Now that is hard to believe sometimes, right? Whether it's looking at someone else or even looking at ourselves. Nonetheless, this is the, this is the invitation to consider. They're just visiting. The other really interesting thing about that statement, I think, is that the Buddha did not say it's because of visiting forces that we're crummy people, we're awful, we're terrible, we're nasty. Because of visiting forces, we suffer. So the grid almost with which we look at ourselves, the things that come up in our minds, the emotions is not right and wrong, good and bad so much, is what leads to suffering and what leads to the end of suffering. So it's a very different kind of relationship, right? To your own greed or, or anger or whatever. It doesn't mean you don't know the difference between hatred and love. But we can recognize what's happening in a different way. It's because of visiting forces that we suffer. And I'll also say it's not just because these forces visit. It's because of how we relate to them. Especially when we get so overcome that it determines our choices. You know, limits our lives. Because we can't see maybe the greatness that's actually possible for us or, or what options there might be. We're so overcome by something that, by definition, has a kind of tunnel vision. You, know, you think about being really lost in anger, or really lost in fear. It's not, it doesn't tend to be a time when 
you think happily, well, if it doesn't work out this way, maybe it'll work out that way, right? It's like the whole world shrinks and gets very small. Or when you're really lost in greed, like I've got to have this rug. (laughs) How will I get it back? How will I sneak it out of the room without them noticing? Right? Then the world again, it all, you know, we get tunnel vision, which doesn't serve us that well. So I sometimes thought I like that, that saying right from the beginning, because right away I can imagine myself sitting happily at home, minding my own business, feeling quite all right, and then hearing a knock at the door. And going over to open the door and I open it up and there's greed or jealousy or hatred or fear coming to visit. And I fling open the door and I forget who actually lives there and say, welcome home, it's all yours. Or we might do and commonly do do the opposite. We're so ashamed and so upset and so freaked out that this force has come to visit that we desperately try to shut the door and make believe we never heard the knock only to find somehow that that visitor starts coming in the window or coming down the chimney or somehow makes their presence known. So some of the skill of mindfulness actually is what do you do that will serve you when you open that door? Instead of adding shame and fear, this feeling of failure, I should have been able to stop it, I should never be afraid again. Or that confusion, welcome home, it's all yours. I'm an angry person and I always will be. That's all that I am. We can have a kind of balanced awareness. This is what's happening right now without pushing away or trying to reject and also not getting consumed by, overwhelmed by, defined by this force which is really just a visitor. That's a skills training. So with all of these kind of difficult experiences, we can learn to be with them with much greater awareness and much greater compassion. Some people would say, some teachers would say, well, you open the door and there's greed or there's jealousy, invite them in. Invite them in for a meal. Don't let them take over the house. Keep watchful of them, but you don't have to be so afraid of what you're feeling. Because the problem is not the feeling, the problem is getting lost in it or hating it. Right? It's how we relate to it. So I was once um, teaching in Barry at, at the Insight Meditation Society, and I said, hey, you know, try inviting them in for a meal. And someone in the room didn't like that. So I said, how about a cup of tea? <laughs> and they said, how about a cup of tea to go? And I said, okay, it can be a cup of tea to go. It's just something so that you feel that relationship where it's like, You're not afraid of what's coming up in your experience. You don't have to be afraid. Because you can have a relationship to it 
that has more balance, more spaciousness, more kindness, more clarity. You see what you're experiencing and you're not falling into those old ways of relating, which only, they're ineffective and they only make things worse. We learn how to deal with painful experience in a different way. We remember that whatever's happening is changing. It's impermanent. It's coming. It's going. We see into the heart of our experience. So we're not just saying on the surface. Things like that. The whole process begins with not getting lost in, in what we sometimes call add-ons. The word in Pali, the language of the original Buddhist text, is papancha. It means proliferation. I like it because I think it's like one of those words that sounds like what it means. I think it sounds like popcorn, right? <laughs> proliferation, papancha. <laughs> I was once in, in Barry, I heard a, a translator once describe it as the imperialistic tendency of mind, where something happens and the entire world is taken over. So this is the example I usually use. I was teaching with my friend Joseph Goldstein somewhere, and Joseph and I were sitting in the kitchen having a cup of tea when someone came into the kitchen in some distress, and he said to Joseph, I had a really terrible experience meditating. So Joseph said, what happened? And he said, I felt all of this tension in my jaw, and I realized what an incredibly uptight person I am, and how I always have been and I always will be. And Joseph said, you mean you felt a lot of tension in your jaw? And he said, yes, and I've never been able to get close to people, and it's never going to change. And Joseph said, you mean you felt a lot of tension in your jaw? <laughs> and he responded with this very elaborate story that took in the rest of his life, and Joseph said, you mean you felt a lot of tension in your job? It was really interesting for me, watching them go back and forth and back and forth. And finally, Joseph said something like, why are you adding a miserable self-image to a painful experience? It's like painful enough, and genuinely so, to feel that tension in your jaw. But on top of that, we have, and I'm going to be alone for the rest of my life. And this is going to last forever. And I am the only one who ever feels such a thing, right? So one of the things we say in mindfulness teaching is look for the add-ons. Let's look for what we might be adding on to the experience that might be actually intensifying the discomfort, adding a sense of aloneness or whatever to what is actually happening, which may be hard enough all in and of itself. So we look for the anons. And then we look into the experience. Because all of these experiences, sensations, emotions, tend to be multi-layered. Right? If you're looking at a state of anger, for example, and you're simply looking, you're not hating it, and you're not ashamed of it, and you're also not diving into it, like, yes, I'm going to do that vengeful thing, and that vengeful thing, and that vengeful thing. But you're actually looking like, what does anger feel like in my body? What's the, what's the anger movie, really? 
you see likely moments of sadness, moments of fear, maybe moments of guilt. Very, very likely you see moments of helplessness or powerlessness. In Tibetan Buddhist teaching they say, anger is that which we pick up when we feel weak because we think it's going to make us strong. So very likely you feel that sense of weakness or vulnerability or helplessness, right? See many things as you look at the anger. And you see they're constantly changing. Now, that's not a very nice list. If somebody handed me a menu on my way in here and said, what would you like to experience? I probably wouldn't check off moments of sadness and moments of fear and moments of helplessness and moments of rage. But that's an alive system. Right? That's a very different way of experiencing anger. And we understand its changing nature. So we say mindfulness is a quality of awareness that can go anywhere. We can be mindful of peace. We can be mindful of anger. We can be mindful of pleasure. We can be mindful of pain. It's not about what's happening. It's about how we're relating to what's happening. So this is why I say over and over again, you cannot fail at meditation practice. We tend to have a lot of ideas about what should be happening. Like I should go from serenity to peace to joy to bliss. And that took a few years, but that's all I experienced. Um, it's not like that. We go up and down. It's just life, right? It's like a mirror of all the things we have in life. Sometimes... It's so peaceful. Sometimes it's so restless. And it's all good. It's all important. Because what we're doing is trying to cultivate how we are when we answer that knock on the door. How much presence, how much balance, how much awareness, how much love and compassion can we bring to that moment? Whether we're looking at joy or looking at sorrow. Looking at pleasure or looking at pain. Because we could never actually control it. Like thus far, no one's waited at the door with a menu, right? Uh, it's incredibly strengthening and freeing to understand I have a capacity, that a resource. It's like resourcefulness. I can bring this quality with me whatever happens. So all is not lost if I have a kind of down period. It's also a training we have in terms of experiencing pleasure. I started talking about this last night. Experiencing joy. So that we really can take it in. And, and take delight. And feel gratitude for the, the good things that come our way. Because we can have such a funny relationship to pleasure as well. It's not the right rug, therefore I can't appreciate my rug. It's not the one thing I think I need. So forget that it's great, right? It's just not that. Or I've got to keep this forever. So before we even enjoy it, we have to like wrap it in something, right? And keep it from ever, 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 ever getting frayed. As though we could. Right? So we add this kind of clinging or grasping. Or we might have a lot of distractions, so we don't even take in the great things that are coming our way. Or we can have, we can certainly have this very funny 
kind of sense that we don't deserve it. So uh, we're not really very fully present with the joyful, wonderful, tremendous things that are coming our way. Sometimes these days I use this example. So I live in Massachusetts or New York City, so that's East Coast. Um, one uh, December, a couple of years ago, I went to Maui to teach a retreat with Ram Dass and Krishnadas, both old friends. So that's December. It was very nice to get out of Massachusetts. And it was Maui, which is just like unearthly beauty. Um, it's really not even like being on earth. It's so gorgeous. And the retreat was being held in this resort. We kind of took over this resort that was right near the ocean. It was right on the beach. So like in the dining room, there, there were no like glass windows or anything. There was no barrier. You know, you were just like right in the ocean. And it was just like the breeze. And um, it was so gorgeous. So this was a retreat, so it was on my schedules, public. But I did something extra when I got there, like I tweeted about it or something happened. So all of a sudden I was getting all of these messages, like, wow, you're on Maui. And right away I found myself responding by saying, it's very humid here. <laughs> it's terribly, terribly humid. You wouldn't like it. Um, come all this way and it's so humid and I mentioned that in the hall that became like a thing right and so I was walking out of the hall one day and behind me uh, was a friend and the now adult son of another friend and he was saying to her oh you know my mom was so close to coming she almost came and then the last minute she decided she couldn't and now she is so filled with regret. She feels so bad. And without missing a beat, my friend said, did you tell her how humid it is here? <laughs> right? So we can have a very kind of awkward relationship with pleasure, delight, joy, just as we can have a, a very kind of compounding relationship with pain or difficulty. And with neutral experience, we can go to sleep. It's just a breath. It's just another cup of tea. It's kind of ordinary, routine, repetitive. That's where we tend to numb out. We can be so reliant on intensity to feel alive. Right? So mindfulness, by definition, is a quality of awareness that allows us to experience pleasure differently, pain differently, and neutral experience differently. So we have a kind of clear and clean connection to what's going on, we're aware of it, we're more balanced, we're not trying to push it away or getting lost in it, and the world opens up for us because of that. We see so much more we understand so much more, we enjoy things so much more. That's the quality of mindfulness. It's not about what's happening, it's about how we are with what's happening. So if you were describing a meditation session to like some great Burmese master, and you said, I was sleepy, then I was angry, and then I was judgmental, 
and then my back hurt, and then I was sleepy again, and then I was restless, they would say, and how were you with all of that? Because none of that is like a sign that it was a bad meditation session. Isn't that different from how we usually are? So that's part of the adventure, actually, of meditation practice, is moving out of our ordinary ways of evaluating and realizing they don't work here. This is something very different. In sitting meditation, uh, you might start with feeling the breath, and then as those very kind of minor things come and go, not very strong, you just let them go. But then when something comes up with a bang, strong emotion, strong sensation, you turn your attention fully toward that experience trying to recognize it, this is what's happening right now, not fall into an immediate reaction, holding on or pushing away, take something of an interest in it, and then see if you can let go and come back to the feeling of the breath. So every, I won't do some of this, every session might look really different. Sometimes there's a lot going on, sometimes there's not much going on. We practice sitting in that way. We practice with anything. I had one meditation teacher, this Burmese teacher, Saila Upandita, who came to Barry uh, to the Insight Meditation Society in 1984 to teach a three-month retreat. And we had never met him before, but we invited him. And we're all sitting with him under his guidance. So that's kind of intense, right? For three months. And he turned out to be this extremely fierce, demanding, intense, intense, intense teacher. And he also, we were seeing him six days a week for these very short meetings, which for some reason we've always called interviews, which aren't interviews. But it's just a chance for you to describe your meditation practice and get some feedback. So he also had the, just a habit of pedagogy. It was the way he taught. He had the tendency to kind of get on the track, and so he'd say pretty much the same thing over and over and over and over and over again every morning until something shifted inside of you, and then he'd get on to another one. So uh, we were asked to describe one sitting meditation session, one walking meditation session from the previous 24 hours when we went in to see him. So most of us took some notes, just brief notes, like I was sleepy, and then I was this, and then I was that, whatever it was, so we could describe it. And he and I went through this entire period, long period, where I had my notes, and before I could read them, he would say to me, tell me everything you noticed when you drank a cup of tea, which was nothing. <laughs> so I left. That was all he said. So I left, and the next time I drank a cup of tea, I felt my hand reaching down, felt the warmth of the teacup, I smelled the tea, I tasted the tea. I went back in to see him the next day, and before I could say anything, he'd say, tell me what you noticed when you washed your face, which was nothing. <laughs> so I left, 
and I sat and I walked and I drank my tea really mindfully in case he went back to that. And when I washed my face, I felt my hands in the water and I felt the water in my face. And I'd go in the next day and he'd say, tell me everything you noticed when you took off your shoes, which was nothing, out the door. And I quickly saw where things were going. And in my mind, and I think in a note I sneaked to a friend, I called it the torment of continuity. I thought, oh God. But it actually was a wonderful experience because it broke down a lot of the thinking, like, oh, the real thing happens when you're sitting in a certain posture in the hall and everything else, well, you've got to eat, you've got to drink tea, you've got to get, you know, you have to wash your face, you have to get through the day so you can run back into the hall and have a really good meditation experience. And it just broke that down, because everything was an act of meditation. Just inevitably, and I could do it because it was a very protected, intensive retreat, I ended up slowing down a lot. It really became like a joke. Um, and Upanditu was working with each of us very individually, which we had no way of knowing, because we were silent. So I used to see my friends like moving really quickly, and I think, why am I the only one listening to him? You know, it's like everyone else is just doing what they want, you know, and I'm like reaching for the glass. Um, you know, we can't move at that excruciatingly slow speed in life, but it's like a little training period, right? Because then when you're at work and it's crazy all around you and there are all those demands and there's so much pressure, you can remember, oh, feel the cup. Smell the tea. It'll just bring you right back. And remember last night we talked about short moments many times. That's what we're trying to do in life is interject these moments where we feel more centered. We're paying attention in a different way. We're having a different relationship to our experience. So ultimately that's our goal. We practice sitting. We practice walking or movement or in some activity, like drinking a cup of tea, right? So we're going to take a period of time now. Uh, I'll describe walking meditation if you have any kind of issue at all with walking. You don't have to do it walking. Um, I'll describe some alternatives. It's really, the goal is to kind of get out of the formality of the sitting meditation and to bring qualities like concentration and mindfulness alive into some activity, okay? So commonly this is talked about as walking meditation. This afternoon when we do walking meditation, it'll be with loving kindness. So this is like just one style. Okay, so if you are walking, uh, the first thing I would say is eyes open. <laughs> okay? Like right now, see if you can pay attention to some predominant sensation in your body. As you listen, as you think about where you want to go to walk, right? And eyes open. It's a very light awareness, because we also want to be aware of what's going on around us. We don't want to barge into people, right? So just now, just have that light awareness that you keep coming back to, some sensation in your body. 
So there's some schools of meditation that would urge that we rest our attention on the feeling of the breath as we walk. I've never trained that way. It's not how I've done it, so it's not how I teach it, but it's fine if you're used to that. I was more taught to, instead of trying to have that light awareness on the breath, to have that light awareness on the feeling of your body in movement, either your body moving through space or your feet touching the ground, like touch, 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 touch. That becomes the home base for the awareness. If your eyes are open, you are likely to get extremely distracted. It's okay. Remember the fundamental principle of all practice is the ability to begin again. You know, and there's a lot of bad visual stimulation that can really get us going, like, wow, what a garden. That's an incredible garden. I need a garden. But that means I have to move. While I'm moving, where should I move to? Right? And then we realize it and we come back to the feeling in the body. Now, if you have, if you're doing a formal walking meditation, it depends on how much space you have and how protected you are from prying eyes, you know, or people who will think you're insane. Um, we really adjust the pace. You can do walking meditation at a totally normal pace. If you go out into the street, please do that. Um, if you're in a more contained situation, then sometimes we just vary the speed. You're just walking back and forth. Maybe it's the width of this platform or something, the area you have. And to start with, move just at a normal pace. So what you're aware of is your feet touching the ground, like touch, 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 touch. And then slow down somewhat, so you can feel the sensations of your leg coming up and going down. Next leg going up and going down. It's not an anatomical exercise. You're not trying to think, oh, this muscle group's doing this and that muscle group's doing that. You're feeling. Right? Heaviness, lightness, pressure, movement. You don't have to name those things, but that's what we're paying attention to, is the actual sensations. And then if you want, you can slow down a lot. And this you really need a certain environment for. Um, don't slow down so much that you're falling over, but you can slow down a lot. You slowly lift your leg up and you feel all the sensations of that movement up. Moving your leg forward, shifting down, shifting your weight, and then next leg up, forward, down. It's a very exquisite kind of dance. Um, looking at it, People always say, oh, that's like the night of the living dead or something like that, you know, which is why you don't really want to go out on the streets of Montreal and practice that. Um, but, I mean, if you were out in the corridor right here or in this room or I don't know about the garden, it's just like, okay, uh, if you feel like it. Okay, so resting our attention on the sensations of the body and movement, our attention will wander and we simply bring it back. If you choose not to do this walking, that's perfectly all right. Um, in some situations, we say, have a cup of tea. You know, bring your attention to all of that movement. Maybe you'll go wash your face. Even just sitting with your eyes open 
um, you know, if there's a place like in, in the Carter or in the lobby where you could sit with your eyes open where there's more visual stimulation. Um, and practicing, just resting your attention on sensation. Uh, that's really what it's about. It's just the transfer of the sitting, the skill in sitting to, to something that is bigger. And it will be more challenging because it's bigger, but it's also inevitable for us because that's where we want to be able to bring these things forth. Okay? So I hope that's clear. If you have any questions, you can come up because we don't have the microphone set up at this point. If you just questions about that technique, that method. I'm also going to ask you uh, to please be silent in this period, that this is really a practice period and not um, a time to get to know one another, which will happen later, okay? Or, or at other times. So really undertake it as a, a time of practice. And we'll take... Um, 25 minutes, okay?